0: What I've observed is a really big concern about lack of trust. You started to see local people through this process, they just don't trust government. Of course, they don't trust the company, of course, so they don't trust actually how the government is mean, handling the situation there. When you live in it, literally, you know, when you witness the bloom, the pollution, the smoke, and the literally you know, ashes on your desk at home, you cannot drink the water. It is disastrous. You know, The impact is huge.
1: One of the concerns that seems to be emerging now is that some of the fire retardant that was used to put down the fire has a very dangerous chemical in it, and that is apparently going to be an even graver risk getting into the Ohio River than some of the stuff that they were concerned about in the first place. It seems to be one mess after another, and again, like a a chain of dominoes, going all the way back to not just the failure of an axle, but decisions at the federal level regarding regulations, but also at the corporate level to maximize profits
2: we can use this as a political battlefield in this upcoming election, or we could try to do something significant, you know, for the people that are in that region and, and people around the country and around the world that need to get alerted to this type of thing. I think it's a valuable exercise for us to discuss it today.
3: The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
1: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Yun. Joining our discussion on the chemical disaster caused by train derailment in Ohio, the United States, are Changhua, Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University in Shanghai, and Edward Lehman, Founder and Managing Director of China-based law firm Lehman Li and Xi. Welcome back to the show, everybody. So, People are concerned that the toxic fumes from um, burning chemicals released from a derailed train in Ohio might spread around the country. And there are fears that when the Westerlies blow through the Appalachia Mountains, it will directly affect Eastern cities, such as New York and Washington. So Changhua, let me start with you. You just arrived in Washington not long ago. So have you found any traces of any um, unusual odor in the air?
0: Well, thank you for having me on the program again. It's a great honor to be on this program together with Joseph and Edward as well. We returned from Europe uh, last night, and I didn't really have an eye seat. So it's more like uh, I didn't really see, uh, you know, over the window, it's hard to feel anything actually high up in the air. And also, as I said, it's right in the middle of the night. Uh, No, actually, I didn't really feel anything. But I've been following this case, actually, particularly in the last uh, two or three days. Of course, I captured the news uh, when it first happened early February. Uh, But of course, when you're too busy, you do not really follow all this very local sort of story, stuff like that. But in the last few days, in particular, two or three days, actually, international media, particularly the US, English media, really started to sort of overwhelmingly you know, reporting, you know, releasing more information about this unfortunate disastrous derailments about the hazardous waste, about the concerns of the, you know, public health impact as well as the impact on the ecosystems. Then you started to see actually people like government business, local communities, residents. So everyone actually directly or, you know, sort of indirectly impacted in this particular case, actually, started to be involved more closely, conversations started going. But somehow, even today, almost two weeks after the February the 3rd, the first day, uh, there were still lots of unknowns, actually, in the air. And that's why I think from both government perspective, as well as, you know, uh, the local community, people are really, really anxious and trying to find answers so that we'll be able to move forward in terms of uh, mid-term, longer-term solutions there. There are some immediate actions taken, uh, you know, on the part of the Norfolk, Southern, the, the the real operator, uh, of course, providing some emergency funding, support for local communities there. Then you started to see Department of Transportation, as well as EPA, uh, as well as natural resources people actually coming on board really trying to dig uh, as deep as possible, trying to piece the story together, particular data information together, so that we'll be able to move the solutions as quickly as possible. So, uh, you know, I'm back to the U.S., so I will follow more closely. Uh, we'll see. I will go out today and trying to see whether I can feel something actually in the next few days.
3: Mm, right. Uh, just stay safe. We'll, we'll um, further explore the the damage or impact caused by the incident and actions taken by parties involved uh, uh, later in the show. But first, let's go over what's Happened over the past two weeks first. Edward, uh, could you help us with, with that since I understand you've been following the development of the incident very closely too?
2: Yeah, no, I've been trying to. I mean, the, the incident happened on February the 3rd and it was a train derailment which created a three prong disaster. Obviously, the physical train derailment accident on a federal railway. So that uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is this hazmat incident with vinyl chloride, which changes into phosgene gas. It's a, it's like mustard gas from World War One being probably the most dangerous aspect of it. But other flammable liquids on board are dangerous as well. And the third prong of this is the environmental disaster, which was just talked about with dangerous chemicals such as, as I mentioned, vinyl chlorine and other flammable liquids and alcohols pouring into the ground, which seeps into the ground water. So this, you know, is into the drinking water, into the table, and it can seep into rivers, killing fish, animals and everything in its way and the thing is that it can not only be present there but can also remain there for quite a long period of time so fire broke out following the derailment and then there was an organized burn that was happening by both government officials as josh Shapiro, who's governor of pennsylvania and mike dewine who's the governor of, of um ohio and you got to understand where this is this place is it's uh i'm a midwesterner so it's in a place called east Palatine, palestine which is um, not far from Youngstown, but it's in a um, only about 4,700 folks, I think, live in in the area. So the fire broke out, and then there was an organized uh, burn, which might not have been the best thing. And then the governors said that people should evacuate, and um, and that caused other kind of problems. But there's, like I said, there's water damage, and then officials are trying to crack this uh, large plume of contamination that's been flowing down the Ohio River, which you're you're talking about previously. So. It's pretty much a, a hot mess, as no doubt about it. And the response has not been incredibly organized. And then it also has the elements of, of the national government. And government itself, I think most people believe, should be there to protect its citizens first. And the question is, is has it been handled properly?
3: Mm. Ed, what would you say um, was the root cause of this disaster? We have to, you know, sort out the cause of it first.
2: There's a number of things, I think, from a legal perspective. One is whether you know, legislation has been in place with regards to hazardous chemicals. And, and we might talk about that more in depth. I, I'm here, of course, in China, in the United States, because of a whole bunch of circumstances, but hazardous chemicals are less regulated in the United States, you know, than they are here in China, for example, you have to have a hazardous uh, chemical permit. Uh, and there's been, you know, a lot of uh, laws and policies that have been put in place. They have been in place over the years in the United States, but the lobby, the, the railway lobby and the lobby having to do with the chemical industry has also worked very hard at trying to loosen up those kind of regulations. So that's one thing. The second thing is infrastructure with regards to the United States. So for those who live and work and are in China, you can see the infrastructure with the uh, high-speed rail and, and with the non-high-speed rail that is in quite different condition from the United States. There were some packages that were passed, you know, under this current administration that were looking to put money, and effort, and energy into infrastructure. But critics have said that a large part of that wasn't really going into actual hard infrastructure, but it was going into the soft infrastructure, which was quite a race theory to being taught at schools and other types of equality measures that might or may or may not have been the best use of money. But um, that's caused this kind of confluence of events that you know. And the rail industry is also, it's gone through a number of of strikes with regards to workers' pay and workers and, you know, the allocation of what time off people can get on those that are working the rail cars. And that, you know, probably exacerbated the situation. Although, I mean, there's there's not been identified that there's been human error, but the situation is is caused by those types of events, at least from my vantage point.
3: And uh, uh, Joseph, do you agree or do you have any other opinions on this cause of the incident? I'm not sure if you are familiar with the uh, U.S. rail system, but uh, I know you, you used to work with the health sector, the CDC, right? From your yeah, perspective,
1: I, I, have, I have different perspectives on it from how it's being uh, handled politically right now and uh, certainly the environmental health aspect in so much as I do work with CDC, ATSDR, the 1990s. Been a lot of time in the Ohio River Valley, where there were quite a number of what we would call Superfund sites. So these are communities that, uh, not speaking for East Palestine, but but these are communities that have a, a long history of of dealing with chemicals. A lot of the, the America's historical uh, chemical factories were along the Ohio River Valley. So this is not something that would be out of their historical experience. Uh, from what I can see, the two interesting sort of angles uh, and I think this would you know probably interest uh, Edward and, and his colleagues in the legal sector is that there's an allegation so the first report seems to be that there was a failure an axle that the, the the ball bearings on one wheel overheated and this caused this one little failure this one little mechanical failure is what caused a, a chain reaction uh, but it's a chain reaction of, of many dangerous dominoes so uh, the, the rail workers union, is saying that this was due to companies cutting cost, moving to a type of scheduling system that doesn't load space cars or or sequence cars. You should put the heaviest cars up front. And um, apparently the heaviest cars in this train were were towards the back. And so when you have a failure in one particular car, say with an axle, then all that weight comes pushing up and you can't stop it. There were other things, that cost-cutting, where they didn't have electronic control brakes on all the cars. And this goes to some rules that were rolled back during the Trump administration, saying that the costs of, of the regulations didn't uh, outweigh the benefits. There were allegations made by the Whale Workers Union that, that they had cut personnel, so they were no longer doing enough safety checks to ensure things like bearings were working as should be. So there, you know, I, I think we'll certainly see a lot of litigation and then, of course, the way the situation was handled after the accident, where there are reports now that there were some chemicals that were not known by the first responders are taken into consideration in terms of the action plan of reaching and, and having a controlled explosion, and that this is now adding some problems. We know that there was a, a chemical release into the waterways. They've counted it at least 3,500 uh, dead aquatic life. There are probably a lot more that we'll never know. And we're being told that it's not a major concern about it seeping further down river. Of course, a lot of people don't trust this, but one of the concerns that seems to be emerging now is that some of the fire retardant that was used to put down the fire has a very dangerous chemical in it. And that is uh, apparently going to be an even graver risk getting into the Ohio River than some of the stuff that they were concerned about in the first place. So it seems to be one mess after another. And again, like a a chain of dominoes going all the way back to not just uh, the failure of an axle, but decisions at the federal level regarding regulations, but also at the corporate level to maximize profits.
3: Yeah, um, both you and uh, Ed mentioned about this, uh, how uh, backward the U.S. rail system uh, is. But um, And I also saw some um, labor union saying that the, the immediate cause of the wreck appeared to have been a 19th century style mechanical failure of the axle on one of the cars. So I'm wondering... How backward, you know, is the condition of the of the railroad system in the States? Is it really that bad?
1: I think the thing that's that's confusing, certainly from a Chinese perspective, you know, in China, certainly over the last how many decades, we've seen such an explosion. And I mean that in the positive sense, not the uh, blowing stuff up sense, but such a a tremendous growth in infrastructure of all types, but certainly related to rail lines, high speed rail. And um, we know that China's infrastructure now has become world class. And I think it's a little difficult to understand how backward the US rail system is. It's not so much that it's backward, it's just that it hasn't developed much over the past half century or so. And instead, what we find is that because the rail lines, the rail companies are largely private enterprises, um, they operate by the profit motive and they certainly lobby to that end, but they also compete, right? So they have to compete with trucking, with long haul trucking. And uh, we reached a certain point in time where we have um, failed to make adequate investments in ensuring that the infrastructure, like rail lines, like bridges, highways, that these are maintained properly. It's, it's, it's a well-known crisis in, in the United States that, that infrastructure has been eroding steadily through the last several decades. But, you know, this problem combined with companies running the rail lines and then having to compete with other forms of transportation and then at the same time lobbying a political system that uh, vacillates between different uh, political poles from one White House to the next, means that things are really in, a, in an advanced state of decay and a regulatory mess. And it's in this context that accidents like this happen, and happen frequently, by the way. You know, there was a report from uh, the Bureau of Transportation Statistics that there have been 54,539 train derailments between 1990 and 2021, which is an average of, of 1,704 per year. But uh, more to this topic in terms of uh, hazardous material release, USA Today says that uh, looking at the, the past 10 years, they found uh, more than 5,000 incidences of hazardous material spilling or leaking from trains. But uh, in fact, these are reports from the companies themselves. We don't know. There might have been more that that took place.
3: Indeed, as you just said, a derailment incident um, happens a lot, or not not a lot, but relatively more often than in other countries. Yeah,
1: more than seventy per year. I think that's a lot. Fifty, you know, more than fifty-four thousand since nineteen ninety. I, w- I would suggest that that's a considerable amount compared to what you you may see in other countries. I, I haven't seen comparative statistics. So, I, I would.
3: so American people are, have got used to this kind of uh, incident.
2: You know, I, this is Ed Puppet in here. You sure. know, I, I don't know if we're, we're not particularly used to it. I, I think that these types of things are viewed to be local. I think you got to understand that the folks that would live in, in uh, East Palestine would be, you know, that's, a, that's a city, like I said, of 4,700 folk. And that's manned by a volunteer fire department. Okay? And so I don't know if people know this as well, but something like, what is it? 68 percent of all firefighters in the United States are butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers full time, but they're they're volunteer firefighters. So you have a town like East Palestine, and it would be probably 45 firefighters, all volunteer. Maybe two or three of them would be trained in hazmat, and um, they're making a local decision. And the reason why I kind of bring all this up is, I think that this is viewed as something that's local. Obviously, it is. I mean, the thing took place on February 3rd. Pete judge, who's the transportation secretary, so railways or transportation. We've got a great cheerleader in chief in the White House, which is uh, Mr. Biden, who certainly is, I think, the most um, ambitious about uh, America's railways since, in my memory, I mean, of, of someone who is, you know, a frequent user of that. Uh, his son was on the board of the National Railway uh, Passenger Company called Amtrak, so that they've been very, at least, overtly involved and pro-railways there's no doubt about that and and to speak about what joseph said about the uh, the labor unions have asked for concessions before they were going on strike a couple of times in the last six months of which they were granted those concessions so are we used to these rail derailments uh, no i think we would be shocked by them i think that people view them as a local thing this was handled by local volunteer which would be the and something like a 10 mile radius of the different volunteer fire departments in that area would go and make that decision. And that was made in conjunction with the governor of Ohio and the governor of Pennsylvania. So it wasn't until I, don't, I think about 10 days later that Pete Buttigieg even recognized that there was something going on. And, and this is the head of, of transportation for the United States as a federal or central government level, as we might say in China, um, so that he even reacted to it. And I think on the, the first thing he talked about on that day, and I, I might be mistaken, but it was talking about equality of railroad workers that there should be more diverse so that's what kind of came out on the 10th day from transportation secretary after this had happened so again i'm not trying to wag fingers in any direction it's just it's a bit of a mess as far as how this was taken in, into account but americans don't really know the the kind of statistics typically that joseph talks about because the media is not talking about him. i mean they're talking about things like greta thunberg and and they're talking about the environment and we've got an environment czar. We've got uh, John Kerry, former presidential candidate, who's talking in Davos about the environment. But to try to get folks interested from the federal government, obviously, is extremely difficult. And to talk about making this known to the nation as a whole on behalf of mainstream Western media is kind of where the pro- one of the problems lie. Is that it, And I have no idea why this is not of any interest to mainstream media and We're talking about here on, on Chinese radio, but those are those are some of the things to consider when when talking about this particular incident or whether we understand that these types of things happen. Uh, I certainly did not, and um, you know I have plenty of friends that are law school graduates who are you know involved in, in mass tort actions and, uh, and and that type of thing. Like I said, the lawyers were involved in this thing from just about February third onwards, but it took uh, our federal government some time to respond. The
1: chat lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. And we are talking about the chemical disaster caused by train derailment in Ohio and the United States. Yeah, that's what, what I'm wondering. Yeah, chang yeah,
0: no, please. Can I, this is a fascinating conversation, actually. Uh, so with the, uh, you know, in-depth expertise from both Joseph and Edward, so we started to really get more sort of clarity in terms of not only the level of details, but also the complexity uh, of the issues we're talking about here. Just want to add a few reflection points, just, uh, as well as the information point, actually. I think the the first point is what Edward just said, the U.S. media, at least from my side, because I I read international English media on a a daily basis. And I started to see coming in more and more so, actually, uh, media coverage just in the last uh, few days, maybe on the 10th day, 11th day, I guess partly because there's more information coming out and also partly because... Uh, the local residents and the communities' uh, sort of uh, reactions there, right? Really started to uh, get attention there. Yeah, especially NPR on social media. Yeah, yeah, NPR is reporting, even mainstream media, uh, you know, uh, NPR reporting more, uh, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, you name it. Anyway, so yeah, there's definitely seen more uh, media coverage now, so we'll see. The second point, actually, it's more like an information reflection there. So the, the National Transportation Safety Board in the U.S., just came out saying they have been doing their investigations and they are expecting to get some sort of results announced or released by the end of this month, meaning in two more weeks' time. So that partly reflecting the complexity of the issues there. They are in charge of the investigation of cases like this, so they have to mandate it actually to provide a more comprehensive assessment of this particular situation to the public so we, we can look forward actually to seeing what was going to come out of the, that process. The third point about the infrastructure I think I don't have to repeat, you know, what Edward and Joseph just said already. Uh, the U.S. infrastructure is really, really lousy, and the reason why the Biden administration, are claiming sort of a, you know, celebrated the success of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, is because they finally, finally made the progress politically, right, to really mobilizing more uh, public fi- financing into improving the infrastructure. If you look at the details. It's about bridges, roads, highways, rail system, whatever. There's a big trunk of attach in that, which is just happening now, right? And you started to see Biden traveling around the country or some parts of the country, at least along the East Coast recently, more like cheering up, you know, the opening of a sort of project, whatever, stuff like that. Uh, so that tells you, you know, from maybe from China perspective, it's nothing, right? We've been doing that we've been achieving a lot of outcomes. But in the U.S., this is just the beginning. So we'll see how things go. The last point, actually, so if you look at the, the, the inflation reduction act in the U.S., which is another sort of celebrated progress of, you know, legislation in the U.S., that is about industrial policy, right? The U.S. is bringing manufacturing industries back to the U.S. You could literally imagine in order to support and expanding industrial sort of policy, right, industrialization, manufacturing, stuff like that, you could potentially expect there's going to be more, you know, sort of the way materials, including chemicals, hazardous materials will be, Transported actually on roads, highways, railways, stuff like that. So, that's also going to add a further sense of urgency, particularly in the US, because the bad track record actually of all the derailments, accidents, whatever, stuff like that, if that part is not well addressed, improved dramatically, we could literally expect there are going to be definitely more disasters happening in the US domestically. So, those are the few
3: refresh points I want to add at this point. Thank you. Right. Yeah, and I you, was sorry, go on now, Joseph.
1: Yeah, yeah. You were asking why did it take so long to um, for this to become a story or or something along these lines. From what I can see, there are basically four reasons why it took so long and then why it's becoming a story now. The first of these as Edward said is because it's it is a local issue. You have, you know, seventeen hundred derailments per year across the country. <laughs> It may be big news in a local area, but it's not big news in the national level. And again, most of the derailments that happen, there were no lives lost here immediately. And usually there are no hazardous chemicals spilled. So these things happen quite a bit, but they don't have the same uh, gravity as this one. The second is that there were quite a number of distractions that were already really squeezing out other stories on front page news or leading stories on national level or even international news. One, of course, was the Tyree Nichols killing in Memphis, which was still a very hot topic. You know, there was still a lot of discovery, and I mean, it's still a hot topic now. But um, that was something that was. Really, front and center in the news cycle uh, when this train derailment took place, that was a national news story. There were protests around the country, and then we had, uh, you know, the the, the hysteria uh, and balloon the exploitative in. balloon incident, which uh, I'm of the, the firm opinion was uh, exploited deliberately to to have a talking point in the State of the Union addressed by Mr. Biden on the on the sixth of February. And then, you know, since then, you know, we, we we've had this other new tragedy, unfortunately, at Michigan State, where we had a, three people killed at the university there and the shooter killing himself. So four deaths, so these are the sorts of stories that you know, where people die, you can start uh, worrying about whether or not you're being invaded by weather balloons. Uh, These are the sort of stories that that captivated people's attention and and were certainly not only front page news but being used by politicians. The third reason why it took, took some time is that it took some time for people to realize that this was a bigger story than many people initially thought. Okay, we've had a chemical spill. But I don't think people really registered. Okay, well, this is going to get into the to the river, or that the way that they handle it is going to make them, the the situation worse, or why it happened in the first place, right? All these various chains, uh, this chain of events that we've already discussed. But the fourth reason that I haven't seen other people talking about in the media yet, but we can clearly discern it, is that this area, this part of the country, is these are battleground states in politics, right? What we call battleground states for the for the presidency, and. We're already starting to see Republicans pointing a finger at the federal government, pointing a finger at Pete Buttigieg, who they don't like in the first place. He's, you know, he's one of the targets for a certain type of culture war. One of the reasons why we've seen the escalation of this story is because it's being rippled now through conservative media and being amped by conservative politicians, that this was in some way uh, negligence on behalf of the Biden administration at the expense of these working class Americans in these battleground states. That's the subtext of a lot of the messaging that's taking place. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be having a lot of messaging. I mean, clearly we should, given the the significance of the release. But uh, that's one of the reasons why we're now hearing these discussions, finally, because people are, are finding ways to exploit the narrative for their own
3: political goals. Mm. Your points make a lot of sense, but um, I want to add a fifth um, reason, probably. I'm not trying to uh, defend um, the U.S. government or local authorities or, or this company or the media, but uh, the disaster was probably it's not that severe in the beginning. But the local authorities' handling of, of the toxic uh, chemicals carried by um, the derailed train caused some secondary disaster. And uh People found out that very late after, you know, returning home several days after the, the incident. So I'm wondering how harmful or what kind of damages has this incident caused to uh, local community? Yep. I want to ask uh, Changhua, what's your evaluation of the local authorities' uh, reaction to, to this uh, disaster, especially um, their decision to, to burn off the toxic chemicals?
0: Okay, so I do not have direct experience, I'm not locally. So what all the information or assessments I could only get actually from reading different materials from different sources of media, social media there. At this moment, I think there are some loopholes people are challenging uh, uh, the process, how it's being handled, and uh, particularly around a few things actually. So if you look at uh, the regulations. And uh, so for any companies like in this particular case, actually Norfolk, uh, you know, Southern, they operate a real operator, because they are transporting uh, the hazardous chemical materials, they should have reported everything, right? And uh, there is a very clear sort of regulatory process, registration, right, the disclosure, information, data, whatever that seems to there seems to be some loophole. So we'll see in the end, I think they're going to be accusing whatever legal actions against them in the end. And if it's determined that it's a negligence or violation of the laws, regulations there. Um, then people also now really coming back to the decision made basically to burn the, those are five train cars, actually, because of the concern of major explosion there. Of course, they partly address the city. Perspective, because they were concerned about major blasts that could potentially have more disasters to imp- impact there. But in the meantime, to what extent they have really managed the environmental, you know, perspective, the plume, you know, potentially ashes, whatever stuff like that. I think people are challenging, asking more questions about there as well. The third element, actually, is based on EPA and, uh, you know, the government assessment or whatever. So government basically telling people you can come back home. It's safe, right? According to the EPA uh, released the result in terms of testing the air, uh, indoor airs in particular, uh, water quality, stuff like that. So they say it's safe. You can come home, right? And so many people actually did return home. In the meantime, actually, many of them still, you know, you can smell the odors. Uh, you can still feel the rashes, dizziness, headaches, whatever their symptoms, right? there and of course along the way there's there's more reporting about you know the fifth kills you know dead fish and the frogs actually in some water streams there as well so there's a lot of confusion right on one side you do have this government agency coming out telling you some sort of information there, you know as per sort of judgment saying you can come home it's safe in the meantime you know telling them say oh you better to drink all the water and then people feel symptoms there and then of course on, on the legal side right and uh, for instance, last night uh, here, uh, you know, in the US, in you know, the local time, and there was this sort of consultation, information briefing session, and uh, with the hundreds of local residents, government agencies, or different parties involved, and there was no show uh, from the Norfolk Southern part for particular issues because they were concerned about the city, right? To their staffs, because they heard probably lots of the things happening, so they were scared there. So, you know, with all the things unfolding at this moment, there are many, many loopholes. And so people have many, many questions, actually, in that process. As I said, the investigation is still going on. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, we still, whatever happens, actually, we do need to look to see the final, more like, go forward to the sort of assessment. And then based on that, I believe in the, even the current situation, if you look at the Attorney General in Ohio and some local residents, there are lots of sort of lawsuits, uh, probably potentially be piling up. And uh, so legal process, legal tools actually will be deployed there as well. And fundamentally, uh, what I've observed is a really big concern about lack of trust, right? You started to see local people through this process, they just don't trust government, or they don't trust the company, of course, or they don't trust actually how the government has I been mean, handling the situation there. So it's a complex, it's a perplex sort of process there, uh, as, but it's, in the meantime, I think it's a good case uh, to study very, very carefully, not only for the US side, but also for China side as well. Even though we have not really heard many cases, accidents like this in China yet, but uh, in the last decade also, we've seen a lot of sort of the chemical plants explosion, whatever. So there's sort of similarity about, you know, how to prevent and control the hazardous chemicals, potentially actually explosion and other leakage actually to the environment. that on one side, of course, threaten people's health. In the meantime, on the other, threaten the biodiversity, the ecological part there as well. So those are things I think we could learn uh, at the same time, that's why I'm you know, we're talking about it here today. In the meantime, I definitely would like to see more you know, attention and interest from China side to study this. We need to learn the lesson in order to prevent more disasters down the road.
3: Indeed, uh, though it happened in the States, um, people around the world, or especially in China, as you said, have a lot of, to learn from this incident. We'll talk about uh, lawsuits against uh, the company later, but uh, Changhua there is this assessment that this could develop into some disaster, maybe like Ohio's Chernobyl. Do you think that's overstatement or?
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand. When I, when I saw that word, I, you know, I was like, yeah, it's very interesting. That tells you something. That tells you the sense of urgency, the sense of crisis, and the sense of frustration at the local side, particularly on the part of the local people, local community. When you live in it, literally, yeah, you, when you witness the plume, the pollution, the smoke. And uh, literally, you know, ashes on your desk at home. You cannot drink the water. It is disastrous. And, uh, you know, the impact was huge, right? So I do understand, uh, you know, say, yeah, you just coin that word, it's probably not that exaggeration for local people when you live in it at this moment. But whether the final impact, if you really quantify you know, some sort of major indicators of whether the impact will be as large as Chernobyl. will see, they said I. Uh, you know, I will be waiting for the final assessment actually to come out in order to draw sort of clear conclusion on things. The like chat this. lounge.
1: The chat lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual
3: way. Since uh, Changhua and Ed have talked about this illegal side of this uh, incident, and um, obviously uh, locals have filed uh, lawsuits against the company, uh, Norfolk Southern. But um, I'm wondering if any lawsuits can be um, filed against uh, the local authorities or the regulator, because, you know, it's really hard for people here in China to to imagine that laws regulating hazardous uh, chemical transportation could be loosened just because of some lobbying groups. Do you think that's possible?
2: You know, lawyers, they're out there looking for things. I mean, actually, the, the truth be told, I did a search on the docket this morning just to see it's online, so you can you can check these types of things. But there's been at least one lawsuit that I can find that's been filed over the der- derailments, so only one. There's been a lot of announcements, but an East Palestine business owner and two residents have um, sued the rail operator in federal court just on Tuesday, and alleging the negligence of the Norfolk Southern and exposure to toxic substances as well. They're, you know, and obviously, they're looking probably to convert that into a class action. So a class action would be about all those people who are known and unknown. You know, the, the right now, it's specifically a business owner and two other residents of East Palestine. But by, by the way, I'm pronouncing it East Palestine because that's how the way the locals do. Yeah, sure. just, if you don't, for those of you who don't know Ohio or you know, I'm from Illinois, we've got uh, Eakin, Illinois, after after Beijing, and we've got Milan, Illinois, and then we've got Paris, Illinois. So in, not only does Ohio have uh, East Palestine, but it's also got Palestine, uh, Ohio, in the western part of the state. But these are actually people that are designated, and uh, the class is anyone that uh, is named or unnamed. So once you get a class representative, then you can certify a class, and then those people who are damaged would be included in any kind of a, a lawsuit against the rail line or against the uh, Whomever else that they would hold culpable in this matter. Now, as to whether they can have a uh, a claim against Josh Shapiro and the governor, the governor of Pennsylvania, the go- or the folks over there, or Mike DeWine, who's a Republican, um, who's the uh, governor of um, Ohio. You know, usually there's a governmental immunity from these folks unless they can show some kind of massive negligence, you know, or intentional uh, negligence. But there's um, yeah, you know, at least a couple of law firms that uh, are saying that they're representing plaintiffs or you know victims of this uh, situation now. I think that that will flourish and there will be many, uh, not one, but a number of class actions filed there and, and a whole bunch of folks uh, named. But like I said, you could sue the United States and you can sue different offices and officials. There's no question about that. Question about whether you'll be successful or not and whether there's deep pockets there. I mean, the people who are really suffering are, again, the local folk. This was at one point, I mean, an, an area in which uh, chemicals were used to make tires. It, uh, it was known for a place that they made porcelain, you know, products or Chinaware. And actually, the, it's known now for orcharding, which is a place where you are, you know, raising trees for fruits and uh, and other types of things. Um, and that's obviously going to damage the uh, the industry there. So I, I would imagine there's going to be a, a lot of litigation. And, you know, with all these things, it takes time. It'll take about a year and a half probably to get the class certified, um, which means that they'll say, yes, this is the people who share a common problem, which is you know, damage that happened as a result of the incident. But it goes back to, again what, to what Joseph said, is that there's a lot of incidents, not many of them are made public because there isn't someone that's killed, and there was no one immediately killed at this, And not, not like in some of these other incidences. In, in New Jersey, there was a case back in 2012, I guess, which uh, had like 25,000 gallons of um, vinyl fluoride that was leaked. But few people know about that as well, too, because the injuries were not immediate and significant at the time. So the one thing is, is having a national dialogue. Like you said, we can use this as a political battlefield in this upcoming election, or we can try to do something significant, you know, for the people that are in that region and, and people around the country and around the world that need to get alerted to this type of thing. I think it's a valuable exercise for us to discuss it today.
3: Mm, and for for the locals, I think an, um, an urgent need of them is to find someone uh, responsible For this whole incident, pay for the loss they've suffered. So I'm wondering uh, what are the chances of the locals winning the case against Norfolk Southern?
2: Well, I think I mean certainly we I mean we've got our own sort of not version of Chernobyl, but we had Three Mile Island and happened quite a long time ago now. But uh, they they have things called Super Funds, which uh, are set aside specifically you know funds that are earmarked or set aside to be able to give relief by the federal government to Folks who are victims of this—I mean—you've got to meet certain tests to be able to do that, and of course the—you know—the court system is open and ready for business to be able to take on litigation. There's insurance companies that would represent the insurance—I mean—the rail company and and directors and officers of the rail company that might have been behaving negligently. They have insurance to cover their policy, and you know those are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars that's accessible, and um, so they're essentially what you see in a courtroom are really insurance companies fighting each other. I mean, you don't see them physically in the courtroom, but these claims are what are called subrogated. So they have the victims on the one hand, and then they kind of you know let the class action lawyers take their role and say, you know, be, speak on behalf of the other group that are uh, victims. Then you have folks that are the railways are insured, and so their insurance policy would be covering those kinds of losses. And they would step in the shoes of the rail company, and then you might have, you know, criminal action brought against uh, directors and officers, which that wouldn't be covered by an insurance. But there might be penalties and and liability that would be paid, and perhaps uh, in some way compensated to the victims. So there are avenues for that. But these are all, you know, th- this is a decade or you know, five to eight years of your life that you're going to have to spend waiting. What what I thought was interesting and in what happened, and again, you got you know, the Democratic governor in Pennsylvania, you had the Republican governor in uh, in Ohio saying, hey, go back to your homes after a couple of days, or or if you can't, you know, drink bottled water. I mean, these are folks who don't make much money, the median household income, something like $45,000. And they really, or if you can't stay in that, you know, your home, then you should go to a hotel, and you'll be reimbursed, you know, if you get out of the way. And uh, that's just not realistic for people in this, in this community. And, and you know, that, overwhelmingly, by the way, voted for Trump in the last election is actually 98% white. So it's an area that is, you know, largely called a flyover area. And, um, and it's, it's not, you know, first and foremost, uh, um, like a, a major metropolitan city would be.
3: It's not only hurting the locals, but also, you know, if the company will have to pay billions of dollars in compensation, it will, I think, will further weaken the, the already troubled rail system in the States. And that sounds like a vicious cycle to me, right?
1: Yeah. Can I add something to what Edward was saying? Sure. You know, as he said, it would take, you know, a decade before we would see a decade, he so said maybe eight years. Before we would see some sort of legal resolution, perhaps longer. But as he noted, you know we're talking about people who are not wealthy, and I don't think Superfund here applies at all, given my experience with Superfund and the way that works. But um, the key is, I think you know, there's a the question of you know, can people afford to leave East Palestine or Palestine, uh, depending on the local, the local vernacular. But the problem is. If you're a homeowner, who are you going to sell your house to? Who's going to buy your house now? Who's going to who's going to move into this area, which is now under a black cloud? You know, would you move your family there? Would you buy a house? And if you could find someone to buy it, you'd have to sell it probably at a very very low price, and you would uh, be underwater. You'd lose a lot of a lot of money. So there, people end up getting trapped in these communities, and we I saw this throughout the Ohio River Valley, in these former chemical towns. Uh, which were superfund sites, where there were cancer clusters. You know, there have been decades of of, of uh, leaching into the water table, leaching into the Ohio River Valley. But part of the problem with, with the science is that we, we can never prove, in this type of case, that we can say, okay, well, it appears that the fish died in the stream or the aquatic life died in the stream from this immediate release. But if we're talking about cancer incidents or a cancer cluster down the road, that takes a a decade sometimes to appear. And then when it does appear, we can't prove, it's impossible to prove scientifically that an individual case of cancer was directly related to a particular environmental catastrophe. So as a result, uh, what you find is that people end up getting trapped in their homes. They can't sell their homes because they can't afford to sell them so cheaply and they can't leave and move somewhere else as a result because most Americans have so much of their of their family wealth tied up in the value of their home. And so what you have people who are going to be stuck potentially being exposed for the next decade plus. They're going to have uh, anxiety, they're going to have fear that they're poisoning their kids. You're going to have all these other problems emerging. You know, we already see uh, reports of people thinking that uh, that they're already having adverse health effects. Uh, the government's saying, no, no, your runny nose isn't due to this. You're not uh, having headaches because of the, the smell in the air. But people believe that they are, right? And, and so maybe they are, and maybe they're not, but they're going to be worried. They're going to have this constant source of anxiety, constant worry over their family. And it's going to have this depressing effect on the entire community. that can never be compensated. And even when it is compensated, possibly a decade down the line, it may have been too late to actually save them from something coming even further down the line in terms of cancers, and certainly uh, too late to save them from the the degenerated quality of life that they've experienced since then.
3: Yeah, actually, um, Joseph just brought up this um, long-term impact on this area. So I'm wondering, uh, Changhua, what's your uh, take on the long-term impact, especially from the perspective of the of local environment protection and um, or anything that you are most concerned with
0: yeah, no, I, I, I echo very, very strongly what uh, Joseph has been just saying. And uh, I think we often talk about the science-based decisions, right? We, we often claim that laws regulation standards are made based on science. But in reality, as we are talking about here today, it's not, you know, that sort of uh, uh, white black sort of clarity uh, when it comes to public health impact from chemicals and uh, other toxics, whatever. So there were three major concerns actually in terms of the impact. One is public health because from science perspective, which is sort of built into the regulation, unless something happened and then I, I just fell on the Die. Most the most simple fact simple, so you can link directly, right? Because this happened, and then this is a consequence, actually. Uh, so you could really you know, pursue this legal you know, solutions there. But in most cases, it's not. It's much, much longer term. So that remains to be seen. I think not. this is not just a US issue, I think globally, everywhere, right? And uh, so we have a lot of regulations there, but when things happen like this, how do we make sure uh, the public health will be better understood and uh, taken care of or uh, helped? The second part is really the impact on wildlife. And uh, last, uh, end of last year, uh, Chinese government actually uh, hosted the presidency for this uh, Premier Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, uh, which literally setting more clarity in terms of uh, the goals and targets to uh, bring back actually harmony between man and nature. In that context, actually, One of the root causes recognized globally uh, is about pollution, right? We need to really prevent uh, pollution, bigger cases like this, as much as possible. Really, we need to aim to get to zero, right? But somehow, in reality, things like, you know, uh, the the disaster in Ohio still happens, and not only here, but in many other parts of the world as well. So there's a deeper uh, discussion about, say, at a global level, we committed to protect life, ecosystems, so wildlife, biodiversity, because it's not just about the sake of wildlife, plants, or animals. It's about impacting our lives, in our lives and the health there as well. So that's the second thing. As I said, I think it, again there's going to be tremendous uncertainty because that's going to take a lot of that, but We need to get data to build up the, the narrative, the image, whatever, in order uh, not only finding solutions but also to support the legal lawsuit uh, down the road there as well. Obviously, I think it's I keep repeating this message. If you look at the Eastern Palestine, you know, this is a forty-seven hundred, uh, you know, sort of red, local residence, small town, right? Small village you call the village, but very small scale. And uh, used to be uh, you know, the, the mills and the factories in the old industrial age, actually in the US back then, but they all been closed, right? So from social economic perspective, it's already a very devastating situation here. So what's the future? For a uh, small community, maybe expanded to you know, neighboring sort of uh, you know, regions, resident Communities there as well. And when side U- the US, the US national policy about reindustrialization, right, and really bring manufacturing back to the US. So potentially this small place, uh, this sort of 5,000 you know, people, would have a new opportunity, but right, right, in the new sort of the industrial age or reindustrialized age. We don't know yet. But in the meantime, as I mentioned, supporting an expensive sort of industrial landscape there, you do need to transport materials. On one side, creating jobs in different locations, communities need to produce materials. And in the meantime, you need to transport them on a regular basis to different factories in order to turn them into products, whatever, stuff like that. So, uh, whenever exist today, law of regulations specifically about those sort of regulation standards at the international level and federal level, local level, even sectoral level there as well, regulating the flow of toxic chemicals there, we all know they do not work very effectively. And uh, so this might be an opportunity actually for uh, now the current Biden administration, the Congress and uh, all the parties, including public together, to really rethink. Have a deeper conversation discussion debate about what lies ahead of us actually in order to make sure you know we prevent we, we need to take a precautious attitude approaches we need to prevent and of course when things happen you know currently now is emergency response sort of situation there now uh, to on my side we do have you know, strong emergency response system framework is in existence, but in the meantime, really to minimize that as much as possible so that we'll be able to prevent more disasters from happening.
3: Mm. And Ed, what's your thought on the long-term impact there?
2: Well, I mean, I think Joseph really summarized it. I mean, that this is going to be kind of a slow and painful development with regards to the community, with regards to housing prices, with regards to, you know, let alone, I mean, people who are making their money in orcharding, people that were making their money in some way, shape or form you know, with uh, with other types of things. And, and uh, the, I, I was even looking, I think some 10% of that population lives below the poverty line. So it's it's a difficult enough place to live as it is. And then there's going to be plenty of folks that are going to be representing the railroads as well, lawyers that are going to say, hey, sign off now, and, um, and they'll take a lower amount of money than waiting the whatever it is, uh, eight or 10 years to be able to get this thing through, you know, through some sort of a litigation. I concur now with with uh, what Joseph was saying about Super Funds. There's about 1,300 Super Funds in uh, I mean sites for Super Funds in the United States, and this would not necessarily, although there was chemical activity in this area, but the site itself, just because this happened, might not be covered under that. This is the plight of Middle America. It's not so much as the story of and a lot of this come across with the you know jobs being moved uh, outside of the country. And uh, you know, the rise of China and, and the the decline of places like uh, East Palestine. And there's a story that's yet to be fully written. I don't see a positive way out for these folks, frankly, because of the the plight and the poverty. I also see that um, you know it's not necessarily you know sexy or inviting to try to you know help out this particular community in any way, shape or form. that's special. Um, whereas other things garner the headlines. And then there's a lot of protests and these types of things that, that get national. This is where people just kind of go and suffer in silence. So it's it's not positive for them. And I, I wish that it could come to a better result, but I don't see that.
3: People are asking why Chinese people care so much about um, the incident in Ohio, hundreds of thousands of miles away. But uh, I think our concern here as an average Chinese consumer, we are asking questions about the safety of um, agricultural exports from uh, Ohio, given uh, Ohio is a, is a big state of agriculture. So is it safe to um, import a soybeans or, or corn um, from Ohio from now on?
2: Well, I mean, I think that remains to be seen and, and tested. And, and this, again, was uh, was brought up by Joseph. I mean, that. These types of things take a, a while to, to figure out whether they seeped into the water table, if, if it seeped in the water table, what the effects are gonna be. I mean, there's been some immediate effects as people have seen with fish, with uh, you know the death of, of all these fish. Um, yeah. But I do think, I mean, right, the knock on effect for, for something like that, obviously it's a rich agricultural area. Like I said, that they've, they've got these orchards that they're making money from and whether those can be exported to a different place. It's the same like Fukushima power plant, when that went down and, and the, the questions, that were uh, surrounding the the agricultural products there, and certainly those were not being sought out by people elsewhere, which creates a problem. But I do see that uh, you know when the butterfly flaps its wings in one place, it it'll affect markets in other places, like um, you know creating a windstorm or a hurricane. So this may very well be something that will happen.
3: Yeah, um, Joseph, what's your expectation? Very briefly.
2: You
1: know, I I think that uh, I, I agree. In fact, I think probably Chang Wa can answer this question better than, than all of us. But uh, my sense is that Chinese sensitivities to this issue certainly I, I would I would take as genuine in terms of concerns about whether or not any contaminated produce are going will be coming to China. Because in, in China, you know, given the incredible attention that's been paid for the last decade to improving food security, to making sure that we don't have contaminated food supplies. You know, we go back to the milk scandal or we go back you know to local levels where we were you know we've spent the last decade cleaning up local restaurants and getting rid of uh, street vendors and and the problems of recyclable. But Chinese people are much more conscious, I think, of of these types of concerns. And so, uh, you know, there's like almost a ready-made audience for it. On top of the fact, of course, that we know that uh, China has been victimized so much by fake news coming out of the United States, that when there's real news, it certainly uh, captures the attention as well it should. So uh, to be honest with you, I I doubt that Chinese consumers are at risk. And uh, if they are, I'm more than uh, confident that Chinese regulatory agencies will make sure that that they won't be. So uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about it.
2: Just
0: just a quickly add to a point, actually. Sure. So I, I think the fear is reasonable. No matter what we eat, you know, we need to be careful. We need to watch out for, you know, potential contaminations, not only, you know, from the U.S., from around the world there as well, even within China. So the fear is reasonable. But in the meantime, I do have this level of confidence in terms of the you know, existing regulatory system. You know, the quarantine inspection, you know, all the mechanisms actually in place, particularly on the part of China side. As Joseph mentioned, actually, we, we now have really much heightened sort of attention to food safety more and more so this there, So I have this level of confidence. I think there will be sort of the safeguards to you know, prevent uh, things like the contaminated food actually getting into uh, Chinese people's sort of tables, uh, dinners there as well. In a broader term, actually, uh, this is a current unfortunate situation uh, between U.S. and China. This, somehow, we seem to be racing against each other on many, many fronts. Somehow, at the end of the day, I really hope you know we can continue to compete with each other, uh, race actually with each other. But we are more and more actually more like racing against time in terms of you know tackling global crisis, commonly shared sort of crises, shared responsibilities rather than racing against each other. Uh, So keep your fingers crossed. I'm hoping for the best. Somehow China does need to prepare for the worst.
3: Actually, all we hope is that um, the incident can be dealt with um, properly and locals won't have to have a massive uh, exodus, something adding to on the acne they've already experienced. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Changhua Wu, Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University in Shanghai, and Edward Lehman, Founder and Managing Director of China-based law firm Lehman, Li, and Xu for sharing your insights with us. Please feel free to leave a review or a comment for us and subscribe to The Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm tuned bye for now.